0: The Cambie Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. It's October 29th, 2021, and there are 351 days until the Vancouver municipal elections. We are less than one year out, people. Happy Halloween and welcome to the Cambie Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. What a spooky episode we have tonight. It's terrifying. (gasps) I'm terrified. I'm quaking in my boots. The blood has curdled in my veins and other such things. The shivers down my spine. However. All that notwithstanding, congratulations to Alberta's new council and mayors.
1: Jody Gondek, mayor of Calgary, Amarjeet Sohi, mayor of Edmonton, both trailblazing first woman be elected in Calgary as mayor, I believe. And yes. the first a South Asian man, I believe, in Edmonton.
0: Yeah, it is really heartening to, to see a council that is like nice and broadly progressive, elected with a majority that
1: can actually vote in favor of things in Well, Calgary. except for that guy who, it turned out, you know, touched teenagers while he was a cop in uniform and refuses to resign. That's kind of a blight on that council. Yeah. Well, not everyone's perfect, obviously. But we're not and... here to talk Alberta municipal politics as fascinating as it can be. We're going to talk BC municipal politics, but in order to do
0: that, we need your support. Check out www.patreon.com slash report. Yes, patreon.com slash report, Where you can support municipal affairs, citizen journalism in Vancouver by making a contribution to not only support this program, but get access to events and to our Slack channel and other such benefits as we can think of them what a incredible thing it is for people to support us in this way and we really thank you everyone who does and if you're not if you can we would encourage you to throw a couple of bucks our way that
1: again is patreon.com slash report so lots on the agenda this week on this show we had a fun little diversion last week where i talked transit with some people at translink and some academics This week, we have developments that aren't developing, parties that are morphing, plans that are still planning, and transit that may one day happen. A lot of stuff is in the future on this episode. I think that's what rounds it up.
0: Yeah. And one thing that is definitely going to be in the future, because it's definitely not in our past yet, is... The South Falls Creek redevelopment, the redevelopment of the area around Charleston Park, Granville Island, and the Canby Bridge, that includes quite a bit of co op housing at the moment. But those leases are set to expire within the next 15 to
1: 25 years. Yeah, this is super interesting land, right? Because it's land that's owned by the city of Vancouver. So the city and city council is placed in a super weird position where they are wearing a lot of different hats, like regulator. They're the leaseholder and landlord to these tenants. They also have the broader, you know, general views as council to decide how neighborhoods get zoned, but city owned land, they can do a lot more with it than they can with many other development areas of the city, which creates a lot of opportunities and it's really good land, right? It's right beside a false Creek. There's good transit there. You're right across from downtown and it's just pretty. Now, it wasn't always. No, it was industrial waterfront land at one point, but that redevelopment
0: created the status quo that we have today. There was a proposal coming forward that had quite a bit of market housing in it, uh, market rental and market strata. And that plan has been very much panned by the people who live in the community. Coming out of that reaction, city council has voted to scupper it creating one of those rare... Hardwick-Boyle
1: alliances that we all love so much. It was a unanimous decision, which was quite the result for this council. They found something to all agree on. I think it's worth digging into what staff brought forward because they did do their best to try to take in a lot of opinions, particularly from residents, but also from the broader city and try to figure out what could meet this council's test. And Unfortunately, they failed. Failed spectacularly. (laughs) And now they have to do it all over again. But what they proposed is going from just under 2,000 existing houses and units on the site to over 6,000, almost 6,700. And I think one of the things they got most challenged by was the idea of changing the mix from roughly a third strata and just over half non-market and co-op with a small amount of non-market rental to kind of a third, a third, a third strata market rental and non-market slash co-op. And because it's city-owned land, I saw people from somewhat across the political spectrum really emphasizing that if the city is going to do non-market housing, this is kind of where they should do it. Like it's much easier for the city to do it on their own property. So why would they not like it? It's worth pointing out, each of this, this plan does increase non-market and co-op housing. People just wanted to see it even more. But the question then becomes, how do you fund that?
0: Yeah. And another question is like, is the, is the area planned particularly well as it is? I would argue that there is a lack of retail and food options in the area and that they could stand to see some increase in the amount of through traffic rather than having it be effectively a bedroom community. Uh, Maybe
1: if we had a nice little streetcar running through there, it could do that.
0: Exactly. It could do that. That would be
1: great. One of the other criticisms with the plan, a big criticism was that all the co-ops, most of the co-ops and buildings there are quite old. They were built in the early seventies when this was being developed. So they will need to be torn down and rebuilt over time. They would still be maintained as co-op, but I think the plan had them all get pushed back from the water all along the edge of what will probably be the future streetcar. And there was a lot of criticism of why are you moving all of these co-ops and all these non-market units into, like, why are you segregating them away? Why is the neighborhood not staying in the mixed format that it is? Yeah. And people
0: people have called that a type of segregation. And I would argue that it's probably one of the more benign types of segregation as things go, but it is definitely a a choice that the city had made in its presentation. Yeah, the plan didn't adequately address that. And I, I think it's probably good that it's going back to our consultation and a uh, replanning again, because while, while there was some, some stuff to get excited about in the, the plan, it had quite a bit to just dis- Indicate that this was a, a creature of design by committee
1: and no one was ever going to be completely or particularly pleased by it. Council did not require this to go to a public hearing and we'll cover, we'll come back to that when we talk about big news on the provincial front. But council did have a public hearing on this. They had 150-ish speakers to it, which was quite a few people who had strong opinions all over the place. And there were hundreds of emails sent about this because people have strong opinions. It's a sizable amount of land for the city to redevelop. And when you look at, for example, the Sanok development being proposed by the Squamish Nation moving forward, that's slightly to the west of this. There's a lot more ambition there that I think could have been met in False Creek South. And so the amendment to the staff report that Christine Boyle put forward that kicks this down the road really pushes staff to try to meet Uh, A few criteria, and she sets it out on her own timeline as maintaining a neighborhood mix of one-third low income, one-third mid-income, and one-third upper income as one part, rather than focusing on co-op strata, Mm non-market rental, spacing out the non-market housing across the neighborhood, don't push everyone into one corner kind of thing, and then retaining the existing co-op and non-market housing as long as possible while building additional affordable and co-op housing. The kind of stuff that makes the most sense to do on city-owned land
0: yeah and that one is a bit like i want a pony uh, of her i think but it's like there there is going to have to be at some point some redevelopment in this
1: redevelopment yeah it's across the region we're starting to see different approaches to like what do you do with older affordable units and how do you both manage that redevelopment, but also manage the people and the lives that that will affect. Like Burnaby's affordable housing task force came up with a wide swath of recommendations that that city has somewhat implemented and different Mm -hmm. cities are taking it differently. That makes up largely for Burnaby's previous approach, which was to just kick everyone out and build towers where those low-rise rentals were. Yeah. Unfortunately, this all means Redevelopment of False Creek will take longer to do staff have to now navigate the impossible task of appeasing as many or everyone on council and in the city as they can, when they clearly did try to do that once already. I do believe they try their best, but. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what happens
0: to that going forward, what transformations it might undergo. One other transformation in the land of Vancouver politics is, yes, Vancouver
1: has become Progress Vancouver. Yeah. This was announced, I think just yesterday, day before, that from the ashes of yes, has risen Progress Vancouver. Now, it wasn't officially framed that way, but then you realize that things like, oh, the Twitter account, Let's Fix Housing is now Progress Vancouver Party or whatever it is, and Mm -hmm. it's just an entire transfer of assets. I think. The goal here is to try to change the branding a bit, try to broaden the appeal and not look so developer-tied and more we are the progressive solution to the housing crisis that we are facing. Uh, Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I I think that's probably a, a pretty good elucidation of what Marison's
1: goals are. This is a vehicle for Mark Marison's ambitions for mayor. Uh, hey now, he has not won the mayoral nod there, and I'm waiting as anxiously as I did to see if he'll win <laughs> this, as I did to see if Ken Sim would win a better city Vancouver's Dominique
0: At any rate, there were a number of city councillors at the launch of it yesterday night, including Multi de Genova, Elise Dominato, Sarah Kirby Young, and it is, this is some reporting that we are are taking a look at from Francis Bula's Twitter feed, that is an interesting
1: assortment of of people for a hundred dollars a plate. Yeah, I think former Premier Christy Clark was all also there, Clark being the former spouse of Mark Marison, a number of other prominent individuals like leader BC Liberal leadership contender Gavin Dew, former mayor Sam Sullivan, Brenda Locke from Surrey, who I think is planning to run for mayor. Beulow noted that this event was relatively diverse or looked like a quote, very Vancouver crowd, which she helpfully describes as code for big contingents of South Asian, Chinese, and others. That's notably different than I saw someone tweet out a picture from the recent team, a fundraising event, which skewed older and whiter, unsurprisingly.
0: No, I don't think anyone is
1: going to be shocked by that. (laughs) Notably involved in Progress Vancouver is friend of Canby Report and my co-host on Politico, Scott DeLangeboom as the president of the party.
0: Well, congratulations to Scott and we will see what electoral chances Progress Vancouver manages to suss out for itself this coming election. Vancouver plan has gone to some updates and there's now a survey out, which you can access through a link in our show notes. It'll be a talk Vancouver link, but
1: what has gone on so far? So they released a media report a couple days ago and they got this glowing review in the Globe and Mail, which says this is the plan Vancouver needs. And like, this has taken a while, but it's good to see a focus on the 15 minute city uh, missing middle. And although those are just buzzwords, it looks like they're really set to grapple with this. And I'm struggling to figure out where they got that because this still seems very preliminary and it's still very much at the here are all the rainbows and unicorns that are available. We're not going to make anyone do difficult choices yet. What if we could just all have housing and keep neighborhood character?
0: Yeah, that would be remarkable, seeing as how they are effectively mutually exclusive. But
1: it's it nice to like see It feels like there's so little like to say on
0: this, right? Yeah, there, <laughs> there, there isn't much to say because, like, yeah, of course there are upcoming plans and policies. I don't know what the Globe and Mail is- He's talking about, it's nice to see them committing, like maintaining neighborhood shopping areas. It's nice to see them committing to it, growth in rapid transit corridors,
1: but it doesn't really bring forward anything to be excited about. It It's not there yet, right? It's not even a preliminary plan. Like when I talked about transport 2050 last week, that at least starts to paint. Here are the corridors TransLink wants to see. Here's kind of how the mode share you know here are actionable tangible items it's a long list that they have but it's at least a list and it's something that like the mayor's council can start to dig into and the public can start to think is this the kind of city we want to see right now we just have yeah there should probably be more housing and it should probably go around where transport 2050 lays out the transit corridors and that's like cool it's not much yet it's not much but add your voice make sure you get heard yeah, and
0: perhaps when it actually turns into something, it will be something worthwhile. One thing that we eagerly await is what what a very particularly worded article in the North Shore News calls rapid transit to the North Shore, never actually ever using the word rail or Skytrain in it, because that is in all likelihood not what is going to be included. But basically, five North Shore governments have united for rapid transit not, you know, actually united in some kind of merger
1: that might make administration more effective on the North Shore, but... Um, Can you imagine, though, how much that would screw the, like, downtown of the city uh, of North Van if they had to deal with the West Van and district of North Van NIMBYs?
0: Yeah, no, it's,
1: it's a system that is stupid, but works out fairly well. <laughs> Adjoining the districts of North and West Van and the city of... North Van are the Squamish and tsleil nations all coming together to form North Shore Connects. And this is meaningful, right? This is the entirety of the North Shore finally agreeing on something. And that agreement is we need rapid transit from the city of Vancouver across the Burrard Inlet to the North Shore. They propose two possible alignments, either the quote unquote purple alignment that goes from Lonsdale through over the second Narrows bridge, the iron workers bridge into Burnaby towards Metrotown or the gold alignment that follows the same bit, but churns at Hastings and goes to downtown Vancouver or do them both.
0: Yeah, it's certainly in a world where bus rapid transit would be the preliminary or, or like proposed option, it would be a lot easier to build a BRT lane than to put in two SkyTrain lanes. But we would love
1: those SkyTrain lanes.
0: That would be great. And you know, it's always a little disappointing to see a lack of ambition in our our proposals that, you know, are are put forward for the future of the city. I think would be a remarkable and and vision worthy investment for the region. It would be very forward-thinking and I just don't think that municipal government has that capacity right now, all that much. It is a little depressing. Yeah.
1: And what's nice to see here is this builds off of the INSTPP, the INSTEP planning project, the integrated North shore transportation planning project, which started studying these kinds of issues about dealing with congestion on the upper levels, highways and the bridges. And they estimate that putting a rapid transit connection over Second Narrows could shift more than 50,000 vehicle trips per day off the two bridges, reducing collisions, emissions, and congestion.
0: That is not insignificant. Like, there is almost always some kind of congestion getting onto the Ironworkers and the Lionsgate, and having 50,000 vehicle trips per day off of those two bridges would be pretty substantial. Now, there there were other hypothetical lines under or over Broad Inlet connecting downtown straight from Lower Lonsdale or West Vancouver, but those appear to be not considered in this
1: current uh, iteration of the unified government's plans. Well, and I think that was inevitable. We were never probably going to see five different lines built to the North Shore right away. And so by coming together to focus on Second Narrows, the North Shore mayors, I think, have made something more likely and something more likely to happen sooner. I think it was a bit of a concession from West Van's mayor to say, all right, we don't need to go over the Lionsgate Bridge or on that end. We can focus on the East End. As long as we get something to connect us all, that's Mm. better than nothing.
0: It would also help significantly the general transportation problems in North Vancouver and the North shore generally, the North shore is the only area, uh, the region where housing is not generally seen as the number one voting issue, but rather transportation is the North shore continues
1: to have substantial transportation problems. And this would go a fair ways to alleviating them. So build that SkyTrain, build those bus rapid transits, whatever it takes. Let's just make the North shore a little more accessible. (laughs)
0: Yeah. The province has introduced changes to local permitting. Now, this is an interesting story because this is being billed as a way for the province to encourage and enable local governments to create more housing.
1: Yeah, they're not deep changes to the community charter. And I think the Vancouver charter is also being touched. The primary thing is that in the community charter for all those cities except Vancouver, right now, when a change is being proposed that's in line with the official community plan. A city council can choose to not have a public hearing. The province is wanting to just flip the default to you don't have to have the public hearing. You can still have it if you want, but you won't have to have it. And that change in default is presumed or hoped to reduce the number of needlessly controversial hearings when an official community plan has already been adopted. Because that was the hearing. Yes,
0: the, the process should be the process rather than the process
1: merely being a starting point for opposition. Now, the weird thing about the city of Vancouver is they already have many of these powers to not have hearings go on and on, or to not have hearings for many of the things they do. The city and council for whatever its wisdom just chooses to subject itself to this.
0: Uh, yes, because open government is important. Don't you know, it, it is a little frustrating to see like the, the natural advantages that Vancouver can like create for itself to actually like get stuff done in the city, be completely ignored by a council that has a specific problem getting things done. Like it's specifically on the housing issue. It is incredibly annoying to see that This has all
1: been like a self-inflicted wound. The other element of the changes, actually, there's two other elements of the changes. One of the others is to help municipal governments in developing or updating codes of conduct. The more substantive one for housing is to enable local governments to delegate decisions on minor development, variance permits to staff. So rather than so many decisions having to go through council, they can just be passed off to the planning department. Yes. And that is a system that has had no faults. (laughs) I mean. Not every city is Vancouver. Not every city is Vancouver. We are a special plum. I also appreciate that the municipality of the Jumbo Glacier Mountain <laughs> Resort municipality is being abolished. This is the community of zero people with a ski resort
0: pointed and, and appointed then council.
1: Yeah, this is the ski resort that's not going ahead. No one lives there, and there is just a municipal council who represents no one.
0: I think that's, I, I kind of love it. I kind, I kind of like the absurdity of there just being this non-council for no one and nothing. It's, it's very existential. It's like, what if, what if we had a democracy and nobody came?
1: (laughs) The province is also going to withdraw the authority to incorporate a mountain resort municipality without residents in the future. So we can't have that, that Monty Python-esque. Municipal Council in the future. Yes. You can't have taxation without population.
0: <laughs> no taxation without population. Technically true, I suppose. What What is happening is there is going to be a conservation area that is planned for the Jabu Valley, and that should be incorporated in some other kind of, of governance structure in consultation with local First Nations who had a significant... Degree
1: of opposition to the ski resort project. Yeah, their religious objections went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Yes, in a novel case. But speaking of novel cases, West Side resident threatens to sue city over redevelopment. Writes oh, the Vancouver Lord. Sun headline.
0: Dear Lord, like what a what an incredibly aggravating thing to do. I think this is hilarious, but I wanted to explain in, in one quote, why everything this man is angry about, I am just delighted for quotes. I do not want my home to be wedged between two apartment blocks. Said Stuart, who has basically been raising the flag against the redevelopment and in our mind, possibly wrongheaded, uh, way of developing arterials and Two blocks off arterials, but suffice it to say, the plan did actually go through council, and it was passed. And this has apparently raised the hackles of one West Side resident
1: at, by the name of Timon Stewart. My favorite juxtaposition right. of comments in this article, and they're not right beside each other, but he says in one part, the city has not done their due diligence. Not a single person on my block had any idea about this proposed rezoning that could allow land assemblies and six-story apartments to go up next to their homes. Earlier in the article, they note he is angry about the so-called streamlining rental initiatives project from the city, quote, which is slated for a public hearing on November 2nd. Oh, dear Lord. Like he, he is mad. There is not a consultation that has, that is still about to happen that he could speak at. Yeah. Well,
0: again, but lack of consultation is just, I, I think a, a, and here it is particularly a bear, uh, code for this did not
1: happen the way I wanted it to happen. <laughs> he has sol- recruited a lawyer or hired a lawyer onto his team. I believe I. I struggle to see what case they're going to make that is more convincing than the ill-fated attempt by the Stanley Park restaurants to block a bike lane. Like, this is the city exercising its powers in its ability to exercise its powers. He's basically just trying to argue that the community or the Vancouver Charter says I need to be consulted, which means they have to do what I say.
0: Yeah, and as it turns out, and
1: I'm sure he will find this out eventually, they do not. Maybe he will try to impeach all of the members of council and Michael Weeb can go through that hell again And everyone else too. Yeah. Well, I think
0: uh, at some point it might be deserved, but who's to say Uh, no, never over conflict of interest. I, I I don't want to be seen as casting his versions over conflict of interest. I just think that this council has been kind of shitty as a council,
1: not that they've been corrupt. They've just been bad. And the solution is the voting box, not the Supreme Court of British Columbia. Yes.
0: But Alternatively, alternative forums, yeah, they're, and alternative facts, uh, Pitt Meadows Council has been delayed due to some anti-baskers. You tweeted something about this from our account the other night.
1: Yeah, so I was tipped off about this, that a couple days ago, Pitt Meadows Municipal Council was set to have a meeting and I went and watched and they did manage to get around to their meeting, but their mayor, Bill Dingwall, announced during council that quote roughly 12 people refused to wear a mask, which led to a bit of a confrontation in the City Hall building, which is subject to the public health orders that require people wear masks in public settings. Now, I've noticed councils and the BC legislature both have Frankly, an entirely pointless exemption that really undermines the entire point of masking, which is that if you're up at the dais, you can take your mask off to speak. And so the people who are spouting the most fluids out of their mouth while making an impassioned speech are the people free to not wear a mask. But that aside, that nonsensical exemption aside, people sitting in the chamber are asked to wear a mask, as are all the councillors and the mayor in these situations. And apparently there is a sizable anti-mass contingent in Pit Meadows who did not want to do that. Perhaps they were inspired by uh counselor, Nia Simpson, who taken to attending council virtually in Pitt Meadows now because she says she is not welcome.
0: And this is a little dubious. It's a little questionable. It's perhaps another instance of our... Municipal politicians playing a little fast and loose with the truth. Counselor, Anina Simpson, refuses to disclose her vaccine status, which is apparently enough to keep her home for some reason. She's not really made a good and cogent case about this.
1: Yeah, Mayor Dingwall noted that there is no requirement in Pitt Meadows for council and himself to be vaccinated to attend. This is an issue each council is kind of looking at. The city of Vancouver did implement a vaccination policy for all staff entering the building, but they didn't actually apply it to themselves. But they noted that everyone on council is vaccinated, so it was kind of redundant, and they didn't want to create a constitutional question that was unnecessary. Although it wouldn't have been raised if everyone on council is vaccinated, so it was a weird choice there.
0: Well, no, I, I still I still appreciate the desire to not pass accidentally unconstitutional
1: laws. Like, that's that's good. Fair. In this case, Simpson has now become a little bit of a folk hero to the anti-vax, anti-mask contingent of Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge. At the same meeting this week, at the end of the evening, one member of the public came to speak, a woman who is a former journalist, she said, who... Well, talking about, you know, the women on council who have done so much to break glass ceilings and fight discrimination, it's unfortunate that we are now discriminating against people on vaccination status. And once she started going down this trend, uh, the mayor cut her off and said, you're out of order because you're not speaking to anything that's on the agenda. And if you're mad at the vaccine passport, your MLA is your forum, not us. And that is fair. People who are chairing
0: meetings should know to keep the meetings, you know, in order and on topic.
1: And so it looks like overall the meeting went well. There was not actually much on the agenda, partially because I think there were some tech difficulties that prevented Simpson from attending effectively. So they could only just basically pass consent agenda and then give the local girls softball team the recognition and medals that they were there to receive. And they had been Waiting patiently while the protests had been dispersed. Peak I, small town. It's amazing. I, yeah. Thank God for that.
0: Vancouver was a slightly smaller town at some point in its history, not only population-wise, but also geographically. And then we did something to what we now call False Creek. In this week's Auto, we take a look at why False Creek is false, what happened to all of False Creek, and what the current plans are came from.
1: False Creek is obviously quite a old part of town. It's been a geographic feature since time immemorial and local indigenous people had set up a number of settlements along the shores. It was quite a prosperous area and always has been. As European settlers moved in, it became quite an industrial area. George Henry Richards first surveyed it and started coasting up what he assumed was a creek on the south side of Burrard Inlet. He discovered his mistake and decided to just call it a false creek.
0: You know, it, it reminds me of a policy that the British Admiralty had for yeah. its its captains. And it was try and find out local names for graphic features. We would like to you be able to use them to ask for directions in the future. And then the explorers went down and been like, no, no, no. We'll name it broad, broad and point gray. How sound. We'll name it after the wife of a person that I met once. Why does she have any interest or, or involvement in the trip? No, I just remember her. She was a solid lady. Island. All right.
1: The Creek was never that popular with the industrialists. It seemed more like a geographic feature that was in the way. So in 1912, the Eastern End was drained by the CN Railway in an effort to give themselves more land to build uh, train interchanges and eventually the Canadian National and Union Station that you can now depart on the Amtrak.
0: Yes. What a shame that there isn't more service to other places. I'd really like there to be. It's only because Canada has... Freight right-of-way instead of passenger right-of-way. But that's neither here nor there. Uh False Creek, yeah, effectively became uh, this railway flats land. And is, of course, now going to be the site of the new hospital.
1: Yeah. They're going to be moving into some of the old industrial space there. St. Paul's Hospital continuing to slowly move forward on that redevelopment. Another weird it was in the 60s, I think it was, there was at least one candidate for mayor who was seeking a broad goal of draining all of False Creek. I think part of that, we may have covered this on a previous Cambie report, was to move Chinatown to there.
0: Yes, and what a weird, and I'm so glad it was never actually gone through with because False Creek is a, a lovely geographic feature in Vancouver and it helps make the city what it is. I think the, the democratic, publicly accessible seawall is one of the great things about
1: the city. And it would be a shame to have, to have given that up. So semi-decent job councils of the 1970s, when you first built that don't fuck it up council of today, make it better. <laughs>
0: indeed and now that we've come full circle uh we will bid you adieu for this episode of the canby report good afternoon for the october 29th 2021 edition of the camp report i'm matthew Naylor. i'm ian bushfield good day